You're listening to Comedy Central. March 19, 2018. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. The mayor of New Orleans is joining us. Mitch Landrew is here, everybody. But first, but first, you know all that data you give to Facebook so that everyone can see it? Well, it turns out they let everyone see it. Tonight, Cambridge Analytica, a data company tied to President Trump's 2016 campaign, is under investigation by Facebook, accused by the internet giant of mishandling more than 50 million Americans' personal information. Cambridge Analytica would create online quizzes. When Facebook users opted in to those innocent-looking tests, they were actually giving Cambridge Analytica access to not just their data, but that of all their friends. I knew it! I always knew those Facebook quizzes were suspicious. What Hogwarts house are you in? (laughs) Enter your social security number to find out. (laughs) And you know what's really messed up? Is that people who were hired by the Trump campaign, they got access to your data because your friend took a quiz. Like, now I'm getting hacked because your dumbass had nothing better to do on a Saturday night? (laughs) That's some bullshit. This is super shady when you think about it, right? Because think about everything a political campaign could learn from your Facebook, right? Uh, They could learn which charities I support, uh, what issues make me angry, which ex-girlfriends I'm still not over. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) But let's move on, even though I haven't. (laughs) Did, uh, did you guys have a uh, good St. Patrick's Day? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Well, I know one Irishman who didn't. Breaking news on a Friday night. Andrew McCabe, the former FBI deputy director, fired tonight by the Attorney General Jeff Sessions. McCabe denies any wrongdoing, but an Inspector General report concluded he authorized a conversation between FBI officials and a journalist about a Clinton Foundation probe. And then he misled investigators about it. Both the IG and the Office of Professional Responsibility found that he lacked candor, uh, which is a firing offense. Wow, I didn't know that. You can get fired from the FBI for lack of candor. Yeah, the FBI must be a brutally honest place to work. Just like, I I got a new haircut. What do you think? You look like shit. I'm so sorry. It looks like a squirrel died on your head. I need to keep my job. But this is a big deal. Andrew McCabe, number two at the FBI, has been fired. Now, the Justice Department says it's because McCabe lied about leaking information to the press. But McCabe has a different theory. McCabe says his firing was part of a wider effort to discredit the FBI and the Mueller investigation. He says he was singled out because of events he witnessed in the aftermath of the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Trump uh, and Jeff Sessions uh, have been attacking Andrew McCabe. They're probably worried that McCabe could be a very key supporting witness uh, to possible obstruction of justice charges uh, or any other wrongdoing by Trump in handling the Russia inquiry. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So McCabe says he got fired because he's got dirt on Donald Trump, right? He's got info on the Comey firing. He was part of the Russia investigation. 
he knows that Trump bought a sex doll shaped like himself and then tried to deduct it as a business expense. <laughs> that last one's not a true story, but it could be. <laughs> but look, just because McCabe was closely involved in the investigations into Trump and his campaign doesn't mean that Trump was going to come after him. However, however, it doesn't help that for the last year, Trump has been trashing McCabe on Twitter. Right? Trump accused him of plotting with Comey. He accused him of taking money from Hillary. Trump even accused McCabe of looking like every background extra on Mad Men, which to be fair, he's right about that one. I can see it, I can see it. <laughs> and unlike most Twitter trolls, Trump didn't keep the insults online. One of his best stories about the president hating McCabe, one of the best stories I've heard, came out after Comey was fired, right? When Trump was so angry that he roasted McCabe about his wife losing a race for state senates. Trump demanded to know why Comey was allowed to fly home on an FBI plane after he had been fired, these people said. McCabe told the president he hadn't been asked to authorize Comey's flight, but if anyone had asked, he would have approved it. The president was silent for a moment, then turned on McCabe. Quote, ask your wife how it feels to be a loser, Trump said. McCabe replied, okay, sir. Trump hung up the phone. Wow. I'm sorry, man, but Donald Trump is a proper asshole. <laughs> Like, like, if being an asshole was an arcade game, he would have all the top scores. <laughs> because, no, because think about it. He's mad at Comey, right? He's mad at Comey. So he insults McCabe's wife because she ran for a Senate seat and lost? That's so messed up. Especially since Trump should know what it's like to have a wife who wants to run. Come on. <laughs> and, and poor McCabe. Poor McCabe in this whole thing. He's so FBI that he gets insulted and he's just like, okay, okay, sir. That's all he does? Because, like, the commander-in-chief insults him. He treats it like it's an order. Why don't you ask your wife why you're so bad in bed? Okay, sir. Honey, the president has a question. <laughs> so, again, again, it's well known that President Trump wasn't a fan of Andrew McCabe, but still, that doesn't prove that he conspired to have McCabe fired. It is suspicious, though, that back in December, Trump tweeted... McCabe is racing the clock to retire with full benefits. 90 days to go. And then writes at the deadline. Former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe fired tonight by Attorney General Jeff Sessions just two days before McCabe was going to retire. His pension now gone. That was just 26 hours before McCabe was due to retire on his 50th birthday. Okay, that is heartless. Right, he doesn't get his pension and his birthday is ruined. Like, that's a double win for Trump because he fires an enemy and he gets to eat his birthday cake. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. <laughs> like, firing someone on their birthday is the worst gift you can give them, right? Well, I mean, it's that or a gift card from Radio Shack. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, now I can buy that Walkman to listen to my Coolio CD. <laughs> Can't live these nonstop lies living in a gag, 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 You know what's funny is young kids won't know what I'm doing right now. They'll be like, what is that, Trevor? What? That was the life we lived. It was a hard one. <laughs> so in the end, Trump appears to have been extra vindictive about this, right? He said he didn't want McCabe to get his pension, and it looks like he made sure that that happened. And we don't, we don't know for sure what happened, but that's how it looks. Like, if you've been saying for a year, I wish my dickhead husband gets killed by a 1982 Dodge Caravan, <laughs> and then three months later, your husband gets killed by a 1982 Dodge Caravan, <laughs> don't be shocked when the cops show up like, ma'am, we suspect that you killed your dickhead husband with a 1982 Dodge Caravan. <laughs> but I love that dickhead, I did. <laughs> Here's the thing. Because Trump involved himself so personally in the McCabe case, you can see why it's easy to think McCabe's firing was about politics and not process. And because of that, people are now saying Comey got fired 
McCabe got fired, who could possibly be next? President Trump is taking direct aim at Robert Mueller in the Russia investigation. Something of a milestone uh, from the president over the weekend for the first time going after special counsel Robert Mueller by name. Saying the investigation into Russian influence in the presidential election should never have started. Mr. Trump's tweets have some wondering if he's considering firing Robert Mueller. I mean, he's definitely considering it. You know how they say men think about sex every eight seconds? That's what Trump does with firing people. Yeah, when Trump meets a new person, that's what he fantasizes about. He's like, oh man, it'd be so awesome to fire that lady. I would fire her so hard. Oh my God, I wanna fire her right now. But the point is, Trump is going after Mueller by name for the first time. So Robert Mueller, I don't know when your next birthday is, but something tells me the president may be planning a surprise. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is the two-term Democratic mayor of New Orleans and author of the new book, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Please welcome Mayor Mitch Landrew. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, the title of the book is intriguing. The contents are even more amazing. Uh, in the shadow of statues, a white southerner confronts history. That is exactly what you are, a white southerner. That comes with a certain connotation. It comes with a certain stereotype attached to it. But do you think there is something about it being a white southerner that, that, that gives you a different way of thinking in America? Well, I think so. It gives you a different perspective. First of all, I love the South. It's a great place. I love the city of New Orleans and the people. But when you're dealing with the issue of race, which is one that we have not dealt with forthrightly in the country, uh, sometimes you need to speak truth and you try to speak it in a way that invites people to a different place. Right. And we've had a hard time doing that in this country. And of course, it's beginning to raise its head again. And every time it does that, I think we have an obligation, especially from your South, to, to confront the issue and to deal with it so that we can heal a divided nation. As a, as a white person from the South, do you... Do you know why or do you understand why it is so hard for people to speak about racism? Is there, is there something, some truth that you've garnered from your fellow, fellow Southerners where you've gone like, oh, I understand why nobody wants to speak about this? Well, I actually think it's a national thing. I don't think it's just in the South. Right. And there, there are those of us from the South who want to tell the people in the rest of the country, you know, in the South, we do know how to read and write. And we do love country and we love lots of things like right. that. And all of us actually have some skills. Um, and not everybody in the South is or has ever been a, a bad person. But... The Confederacy has always occupied this mythical place in the mind of a lot of people. And I don't think it should be hard in the second decade of the 21st century to say the Confederacy was on the wrong side of history. It was fought to destroy the country, not united, and it was fought for the purpose of preserving slavery, which was the worst thing that we've done in this country. Because if you can't do that, it's really kind of hard to move forward and to find common ground, which is what I think we really have to do in this country, especially now. When you say that, that line of, like, in the South, and it's, it's, a, it's a racial problem nationwide. Do you ever wonder if that's part of the problem? That for a long time, it feels like Northern white people in America have used racism as a cudgel against Southern whites. It, it's always felt like that's been a, a bit of the discussion where it's like, well, they're the racist ones, there's no racism up here. Do you think it would move forward if, like, white Northerners would say, oh, we're racist, and you guys are also racist, well, and I, let's, I, let's sort it out together? I do think it would be helpful if everybody in the country recognized that it was a national problem. Right. It's been part of our ethos for a long time. There have been a number of books that have been written about the diaspora, the, the, so many African-Americans and other people that actually left the South and went to other places and met resistance there as well. Right. It's built into the country's DNA. It's something that we've made a lot of progress on, 
Clearly, the election of President Obama was illustrative of that. John Lewis, the great civil rights leader, talks about how we've made a lot of progress, but clearly we have a long way to go. And I say this to you when, when I heard about your book and just the, the, the truth of born a crime, that's actually the way it was. If you right. had one ounce of black blood in the South, then you were described as being African-American, which is really strange because I think that my great-great-grandmother was what we called a mulatto, a person that had both black blood and white blood. Right. So really, in a weird side of way, this blonde-haired, blue-eyed person may be considered black in the South, even maybe even today. Because of that one drop because rule. Because of that one drop rule, which is insane. And you write about that in your book as well. Right. And, and that how was irrational some, it all is. Right. And that was something that determined how people live their lives. And, and the Confederacy is really a, a testament to people enjoying that. When you, when you look at the story of the, the Confederate statues, you were in the epicenter of this. Four statues in Louisiana that you were trying to take down. And you would think, I mean, that it would be a, a simple exercise but it turned into one where you were receiving death threats. Yep. Um, construction companies refused to bring it down. You couldn't get a crane to do the work. You True. had to bring in people from out of state. Were you shocked at the backlash? Uh, I was surprised at how visceral the backlash was and how people really outside of New Orleans, notwithstanding the fact that they were not from there, felt that they had some ownership over property that the people of New Orleans owned in a, six, in a city that was now 60% African-American. Right. And I was surprised that it was so hard. I thought that after the, the murders in um, Mother Emanuel in Charlotte, when they took down the Confederate statute, that the nation would finally come to grips with this particular issue and, and realize that these particular statutes were not true, that they were part of a historic lie. And by the way, it was in the midst of us rebuilding the city of New Orleans after the destruction of Katrina. So we were trying to build the city back, not the way it was, but the way it kind of should have been if we right. would have gotten it right the first time. So yeah, I was, I was surprised and disappointed by how hard it was. What's interesting in the book is you talk about your journey as well in discovering the pain and the message that comes with the Confederate statues. And I, I really found that intriguing because you acknowledge that you had a blind spot. You acknowledge that you didn't see the statues at all, in fact. Correct. And it was a friend of yours, a jazz musician, who had to bring it to your attention and had Correct. to say to you, imagine how it feels for a black Well, he wasn't just any jazz musician. He was actually the greatest one in the world, Wenton Marcellus. Right. Who was a dear friend of mine when we were growing up. And I had asked Wenton, as the, as the mayor of the city, to help me curate the 300th anniversary of the great city of New Orleans, which we're about to celebrate, by the way. And Wenton said to me, I'll help you. He says, but you need to do something for me. And I said, well, yeah, well, sure, what is it? And of course, he asked me just very lightly, I think you should take down the Robert E. Lee statue. Wow. And I said, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? And he said, well, do you know who put them up or why they're there? And he said, can you imagine them from my perspective and what I think about them and how they made me feel? And then the next thing he said really kind of hit me in the head with a brick was that Louis Armstrong left the city because of those statues. And of course, right away, I felt very silly. My head felt like it exploded because, of course, that's the explanation symbolically of the great diaspora. Right. Five million African-Americans left the South. Now, can you imagine how much we lost with all of that talent, all that, you know, raw talent, people who were doctors, lawyers, musicians left and took their talent to New York and Detroit and Chicago and Los Angeles, and we're the worst for it. And so the message of the book is really an invitation to people to be open to the fact that because we made that mistake and we can't admit it, that we are the ones who are losing, not just African-Americans who have been sent away. Because a country's better when, when we understand and go towards diversity, because diversity is a strength, it's not a weakness. It adds value to all of us. When you look at... <laughs> when you speak to Southerners who agree with you on the racism side, 
but still don't understand how the statues themselves represent the racism. How do you try and communicate that? Because I've seen people say, oh, no, look, I, I agree with you. I think the Confederacy was bad, and I think that these statues should be removed. But at the same time, we can't just erase history. Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. Some people never noticed the statues as, as symbolic of anything. They were just the places where their mother or father took them to watch Mardi Gras parades. Right. And it was like a historic building. You never really thought much about it. There were people who had ancestors that fought in the Confederacy that thought that taking them down would, would misremember or do injustice to the people that served. I, I just simply think there are places for remembrance and there are places for reverence. Museums are places for remembrance so that we never forget and consequently never repeat. Right. Special places outside that are part of the public that people walk by who own them, like a 12-year-old African-American girl, should not have to walk under a statue of an individual that fought to destroy her life and her freedom. That's not something that the city of New Orleans has really ever been. And so when, for those people that say they want to remember history, I say they ought to remember the totality of history that we don't really have a lot of slave ships around or a lot of places where people were lynched or the place where most people in America were sold into slavery, which is in New Orleans. And if we want to tell the whole story, we should do that in context. And if we're not going to do that, let's just remember the things that we did, admit that we did them wrongly, say I'm sorry, hope that somebody says I forgive you, and then move to where we all want to get in the country. When you look at... <laughs> when you look at the narrative that many white people in America have of them being the victims. You know, it's, you, it's easy to say that that's a lie, that's not true statistics, numbers, etc. But there are many white people, as you know, not just in the South, who say, well, as a white man, as a white woman, I feel like I'm being oppressed now. I feel like my future is coming to an end. I'm actually the victim in this. How do you begin these discussions with them? How have you found any breakthrough possible with people who are resistant to the idea of any of these right. changes? Well, the first thing, any kind of discrimination uh, is all the fruit of the same poisonous tree from like an, an issue of hate. And throughout the, the country, apartheid in South Africa, you saw this in Germany, that when people are hurting, when they feel alienated, when they don't feel like somebody sees them and they're angry and they're afraid, they will turn on each other. Right. And we've seen that through humankind for a long time, which is why I take such a strong position against white supremacy and, and nationalism and nativism. But it is, it is true that everybody deserves to be seen. So when people who are poor that live in Appalachia who have been left behind by, by ec the economics or, or, uh, or trade or technology, we do have to see them. There's no, it's no use in litigating whether our hurt was as bad as your hurt when a father and a mother, whether they're black or white, are trying to feed their family and they cannot get a job and nobody can see them and nobody cares about them, they feel left out. So they'll strike back and they'll cause the rise of a, of a demagogue to lead them in the country. And I think we have to pay attention to that. I don't think it helps them to say, well, we were hurt and you weren't hurt as bad as we were when neither one of us can find a job. And so in America, one of the great political successes has been turning working class white people and working class black people against each other based on the issue of race right. and not talking about how economically we can uh, work together. So we have to really just kind of work through that. And you can't do it if you can't talk about the issue of race. So a lot of things that I say is you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. You just have to go through it. And unfortunately, right. we're going through that in a very painful way in the country. Not the first time that we've done it, and there's no reason to believe that we can't get through it and still be alive. But of course, that theory is being tested it's being as tested. we speak. Yep, every single day. Um, it's a fantastic book. Your, your message is one that resonates, and I think you, you're brutally honest in it, which I appreciate. Uh, it's gotten a lot of people asking now because your term is coming to an end. You, you've reached your term limits. Is there a potential 2020 run? Do you see yourself 
going up against well, a demagogue? I'm, I'm <laughs> you are. It, it's obviously very flattering for people to talk to you in that context. I've been doing this for 30 years. My wife and I have five kids. I don't have any plans about what I'm going to do in the future. The 300th anniversary is coming up. We're getting ready to land the plane. Y'all should celebrate the history and the beauty of New Orleans because you helped rebuild it. So on behalf of the people of New Orleans, thank you all so much. Uh, I'm, I'm going to rest a little bit and, and then figure out what I'm going to do in the future. He said yes. I t- <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for being on the show. In the shadow of statues comes out March 20th. Mayor Mitch Landrieu, everybody. Thanks. <laughs> The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.